I think the most important thing is being in proximity with the communities we're seeking to walk alongside. Yeah, um, and there true. may be times where it is, it is so appropriate for your voice to be a shout mm. because you're in a unique position or you'll be heard in a unique way. Um, but I think, you know, as we seek to be the beloved community that Martin Luther King Jr. talks about, we won't have discernment about when mm. to be quiet and when to speak up or what issues to focus on unless we're in proximity mm. with the people from those communities. And so, um, you know, and I think it doesn't matter what the issue of justice is, you know, in the Middle East, being in proximity with the people of the Middle East changes the way we do our advocacy. And the same mm. thing with the Black Lives Matter movement or the LGBTQ, you know, plus community. Um, and so that would be my my primary encouragement is mm. to be with the people you know, who are most affected by the issues we're concerned by. What if everything we know is just a lie, is just a sign of the time? Take off your disguise and look into my eyes to see if a few little stretched in front of you. Let's run away together. Pack your bags and we'll take to the skies. It comes as no surprise to me that you're everything this world's good and give my wings to live, oh baby. Friends, welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn. And this is episode number 126, and uh, it's my conversation with May Cannon. May Cannon wrote a book called Beyond Hashtag Activism, Comprehensive Justice in a Complicated Age. And if you would like a brief introduction or even to drill down deeper into topics like liberation for women, uh, racial reconciliation, LGBTQ inclusion, white supremacy, uh, American Christianity, poverty, all different types of things, this book is really helpful. And not only is it helpful to understand, but she really gives a lot of applicational stuff about how you can actually take stuff that she talks about and apply it in your everyday life. Uh, hashtag activism. It's easy to sit behind our computer and be activists on the keyboard, uh, but it, there's a call in this book, there's a sense where we have to go beyond that to actually make a real lasting difference uh, in our world and in the lives of people around us. So uh, May gives us a lot of practical ideas, and we're going to talk about that uh, in the show. Real quick, next week, uh, we start up a brand new series for Advent called Good News for All People. We have a great lineup of guests coming on, so look forward to that. Uh, Patreon, patreon.com slash whatifproject is a place where you can go to support the show financially. So if this has encouraged you, inspired you, pushed you forward in your faith, uh, that is a place where you can go to show a little extra love, uh, anywhere from $3 a month up to $20 a month. Every tier gets its own reward. Uh, the $20 a month tier, I'll tell you, I just sent them out. Uh, every quarter, so every three months, uh, I send I send a book to those patrons, uh, a book written by a heretic or an author who has uh, inspired me or impacted my faith. And so uh, this time around, I sent out uh, a book by Brian McLaren called Seeking Aliveness, uh, which is a like daily devotional almost. So it's 365 daily readings uh, to help you kind of, I guess, maybe see a, a narrative in the Bible that's maybe different than what we have seen, many of us have seen growing up in particular uh, in the more evangelical setting. So I sent that out this month 
And uh, in three months, I'll send out another book. So every three months, they get a new book. Uh, there's also uh, extra blog posts that I send out for different tiers, uh, early access to different podcasts. So really good stuff. Head over there, check it out, patreon.com slash whatifproject. Uh, also, The Heretic Shop, if you want to buy some t-shirts, hoodies. I got a whole bunch of new hoodies in there because it's, it's that fall slash almost winter crisp weather. Wind is blowing. It's nice to throw up that hoodie. It's nice and soft on the inside. Uh, they're American apparel hoodies, by the way. So head over there, check them out. Uh, some new new designs. Uh, the Heretic Shop, I'll put that in the show notes as well. And uh, special music today is from my friend before Jane. I've known this guy since he was a kid, and I was really, really close to his family when he was little. Uh, they moved away, we moved away, so we keep in touch online and stuff, but I, I've had the opportunity to watch him from a distance grow and mature, and uh, he's really doing good stuff with his gift, his gift of music, so please go check him out. Uh, Spotify, Apple Music, all the places where you download music. Uh, check it out, download it, pass it around, share it with your friends, tell your families all the different things uh, before Jane. So that said, uh, like I said, this is episode number 126, and it's my conversation with May Cannon. Enjoy. everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today we're sitting down with my friend May Cannon, who wrote a book called Beyond Hashtag Activism, subtitled Comprehensive Justice in a Complicated Age. And so May, uh, thanks for dropping by. It's an honor to chat with you. Thanks for having me, Glenn. You're welcome. So before we jump into the book, uh, maybe tell us a little bit about you and your story, especially for people who aren't too familiar with you uh, and your work. Uh, who are you and what do you do? Yeah, thank you. So my primary vocation is as a pastor. Um, I'm ordained in a denomination called the Evangelical Covenant Church, um, which is one of the few evangelical denominations that ordains women. So, you know, depending on what perspective people are coming from, just by hearing that I'm a pastor, you know, and an evangelical pastor and a woman, you know, I'm suspect before... Uh, <laughs> You know, they even start to engage uh, with my work. But that's my primary ground in the local church. And my passion is um, seeking to educate and discern and learn alongside of the church about what the mm -hmm. Bible has to say about justice. Mm -hmm. um, so I've written several books, you know, in that field, biblical justice, um, you know, seeking to engage with what's happening in society and mm -hmm. understanding that from a biblical perspective. And then my primary role is as the executive director um, of an organization called Churches for Middle East Peace um, that's based in Washington, D.C., that does religious diplomacy and advocacy uh, with the church um, mm. towards peace building in the Middle East. Wow. Do you do a, like a lot of traveling? or? Well, prior to the coronavirus, I did right. yes. um, a lot domestically, um, quite a bit of travel internationally, typically mm. getting to the Middle East a few times a year. But I'm really, really, really grateful to not have been on an airplane for several months and I may never get on one again. So. Yes. <laughs> and you have a couple of uh, degrees, right? 
I do. I do. I have my first master's was a master of arts in bioethics. Uh, I have a master's of divinity. I have an MBA. Um, I have a PhD um, in U.S. history and then a doctorate of ministry in spiritual formation. There you go. So you are a lifelong learner. May it be so. That's right. Yeah, I have a, I, I love school. My wife always says, if you could make like a get paid for going to school, we would be rich. <laughs> Just love going to school. <laughs> I think my husband said that once or twice too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so let's start with the uh, very beginning of the book, uh, the front page. Talk to us about the title a little bit. Like what does hashtag activism mean and why is there a need to go beyond it? Yeah. So I think, you know, in the last several years, hashtag activism has been incredibly effective. There are so many issues um, or topics that have brought people together through social media under mm -hmm. hashtags. So yeah. we think about, you know, hashtag Me Too, and then some of the sub hashtags of the Me Too movement, hashtag Church Too, you mm -hmm. know, talking about gender equality and the treatment of women, you know, in the workplace or in the context of the church. Um, you know, one of my favorite most challenging hashtags, which was addressing just a horrific situation, was the recent one, hashtag run with Maud, about mm -hmm. Ahmad Arbery, yes. uh, who was a young yeah. black man who was killed while he was out running. Mm -hmm. And people all over the country gathered together in solidarity, calling for um, the legal system to you know, indict and uh, prosecute um, you know, Ahmad Arbery's murderers. Mm -hmm. And you know, what I loved about that movement was the run with mod hashtag wasn't just a hashtag. They actually had um, people around the country went out and ran, and I can't remember the exact distance, you know, two point so many miles, whatever the distance was of Ahmad's last run, people ran to bring attention to the realities of racial injustice. Mm. So Black Lives Matter, I mean, I could go on with other hashtags, but the mechanism of which we have conversations on social media are often under hashtags. And my encouragement is that that can be wonderful and deeply effective and can bring people together, but it also can be superficial. Mm. You know, we go on Facebook and we click a little like button or we, you know, raise our hand or we use a hashtag and then we think, look, I'm such a big justice advocate, yeah, you know, right. I I'm standing in solidarity and solidarity is a great place to start. But my encouragement is that we shouldn't end there. Yeah. I read a book for my dissertation called The Digital Cathedral. And I think it was written by a guy named Keith, Keith Anderson, I think. But he talks in the book about how like Twitter, for instance, you know, with the, with the hashtags has this ability to bring people together, has an ability to unite people, has an ability to, like you said, allow yourself to stand in solidarity with people. But oftentimes that becomes a cathedral that we stay in when in reality we need to break out of those walls of the cathedral and go out into the world and actually do the work that we're advocating for with the hashtag. That's a powerful image. I think that's exactly right. So one of the things I wanted to pick your brain about is maybe talk to us about, uh, first of all, like maybe if we could define what social justice is, and then maybe talk a little bit about why it's important for this to be part of the Christian faith. Because if I'm being honest, like once I stepped out of the more traditional evangelical world and started to be kind of more vocal about things like race, gender, sexuality, uh, the large gap between rich and poor, uh, I started to take a lot of heat from, from my old tribe. Like I've been called a social justice warrior. Uh, I've been accused of using the podcast to kind of spread this false gospel of social justice. We had John MacArthur not that long ago kind of come out against the church's role with social justice. So 
That's know, right. It's, it's, That's yeah, right. it's like all very strange to me. So maybe talk to us a little bit about like what is social justice and why is it so important that this is an intricate part of the Christian faith? Yeah. Well, I'm sorry that you have had those personal experiences. And when <laughs> I you. heard that you were called a social justice warrior, I thought, isn't that a good thing? Right? <laughs> yeah. It was like, it was like, is, is this supposed to be, right. Is that supposed to be a, a diss or what is this? <laughs> right. Right. So, you know, justice is about what's uh, doing what's right. And I often yeah. talk about, you know, biblical justice being the manifestation of God in the world where all people have equal access to opportunities and resources that God provides. Mm. And, you know, we can look at biblical justice and spend hours and hours and hours talking about how justice is at the heart of the scriptures and at the mm. heart of the gospel. So for some of the individuals you mentioned and some of the streams of the church that look at social justice and are so suspicious I just want to say, can we open the Bible together? Like, can we really look at what the scriptures have to say? You know, Psalms <laughs> says righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. I mean, mishpat, the Hebrew word for justice, appears hundreds of times in the Old Testament. And often contemporary evangelicals or conservative Christians will say, yes, but that was, you know, the justice of the prophets. You know, Jesus didn't talk about justice. And that's when I think, and forgive me, I'm going to get a little academic, but when we look at the scriptures in the New Testament, the Greek word that is translated in the vast majority of English translations as righteousness is actually a word that encapsulates those Hebrew ideas of both righteousness and justice. So the word is dikaios or dikaiosune. And in the New Testament, when you read the New Testament in Spanish, that Greek word is translated half the time as justice and mm. half the time as righteousness. But when, in English, most English translations only have that word, which appears more than 100 times in the New Testament. I'll have you know. <laughs> um, and most English translations only use the word justice once. Huh. So you know, think about the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And there's a stream of the church that says that means purity and righteousness yeah. before God. And, yeah. But what that actually means when we understand the Greek term, which is dikaios in that case, what it actually means is God cares deeply, you know, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and for the world to be made right and mm -hmm. for justice. And so I think, you know, we really... I think a conversation to be had with people like John MacArthur, who really esteemed the scriptures as kind of the starting point is, let's go back and look again right. at what they have to say. <laughs> sure. Um, so, you know, if that's helpful, I think that's a starting point. Yeah, it's very helpful. And I don't know, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but sometimes it feels like the, the evangelical church in particular has this almost like escapist theology, I call it, where always looking forward to leaving this place, uh, leaving the earth, going to heaven, the earth is going to be destroyed. You know, the, the newness is going to come that sometimes it's like, it's easy to overlook the importance of social justice and the fact that we're called to make earth more like heaven today, not later, but right here and right now. I think that's right. And in yeah. fact, the early church after Christ's resurrection was struggling with that same issue. They were waiting for the return of Christ. And Paul in the epistles says to them, stop, engage, respond with your neighbor, right? Yeah. Respond to the needs of the least of these. We see in James, of course, you know, show me your faith, you know, not by your um, righteousness, but show me your faith by what you do. Yeah. And so 
the early church struggled with that just the way the church today is. Mm, that's so good. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, the role then of an activist or the role of someone who um, is an advocate. Like in particular, the the line that there is between someone uh, using their voice to make room for the oppressed to use their voice and kind of using our voice for the oppressed instead. Because I feel like sometimes people who position themselves as allies or position themselves as someone who is very for social social justice, we have our our heart in the best of, of places as we want to take a stand on behalf of others who are marginalized or oppressed, women, black community, LGBTQ. But our passion, I've noticed this in myself, our passion can almost make our own voice is so loud that it drowns out the voices of those who are who we're trying to to elevate. So maybe talk just a little bit about kind of being aware of that line and why that's important. Yeah, I, and I'm thank you for bringing that up because mm. I think so often we say I'm going to be a voice for the voiceless. Yes, and I think yeah. that's not quite right. Yeah, you know, everyone, even those who can't verbally speak, <laughs> everyone <laughs> has a voice or has autonomy or has you know, Imago Dei and the image of God within them. And so I think the posture of humility in approaching our work and our activism and our advocacy is so critically important because the role that we can play as advocates is to, and you actually said this word, Glenn, is to elevate the voices of others. Who are the marginalized in society whose voices may be drowned out because um, you know, for whatever reason, they don't have access to power or to money or to resources, or um, you know, they're experiencing some type of marginalization or oppression. And so, the role of an advocate is to create space for those voices to be heard, not mm-hmm. to be a, not to be their voice, um, mm-hmm. to elevate their voice. You know, not to um, subsume it, if you will. Yeah. Um, So I think that's a really, really important distinction. And, Mm -hmm. you know, here's a perfect example. I felt like this book, Beyond Hashtag Activism, I felt like it was my soul on paper. I wrote it (laughs) because I was so traumatized by what was happening in our country and then the role the church is playing, which I think has not been constructive Mm -hmm. in so many ways. And so I really felt like writing this book was an act of faithfulness. And then the book is on all kinds of relevant topics, you know, Black Lives Matter and uh, police brutality, all before George Floyd, right? Like, this Mm. is a timely topic. And then the book hits, and it's right in the middle of the country, the country's extreme discord about race in response to George Floyd and the deaths of, you know, so many other um, Black men and women at the hands of police. And then what I heard was we're not going to elevate your book because you're a white voice and we really need to elevate voices of people of color. Mm. And I'll tell you, like on one hand, that's like, ah, you know, where you're like, (laughs) you're, you're feeling like you have something to offer. And on the other hand, I think an appropriate response to that is that's right. That's okay. You know, that, that part of what being an advocate in this space means setting myself aside. And so I say to people all the time, please, please, please read books by people of color. And if my book is of service to you and helps you on the journey, you know, that's wonderful. But to really say being um, an advocate and elevating the voice of others means sometimes letting our voice be more of a whisper than a shout. Yeah. That's so good because sometimes I have, I have a friend who's, who's gay. And she said to me that sometimes like people who are so pro LGBTQ, it's almost like, you inadvertently 
oppress us in the same way that we've always been oppressed. Like my voice has always been oppressed. My voice has always been pushed down. And sometimes when advocates are so loud and they're screaming so loudly, she's like, it's just suppressing my voice even more. You know, there was just a situation in the last, I think it was earlier in the spring, um, and I believe it was the Liturgist podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were doing an episode um, on fat acceptance and body image and some of those um, issues within the context of the church. Mm. And so they were seeking to be advocates, you know, for people of all body sizes, and they didn't have one fat person uh, on the podcast. And mm. so the fat advocacy community was saying, wait a minute. <laughs> hey, hold <laughs> on. About- <laughs> <laughs> all you skinny white people are talking about, you know, what right. fat acceptance looks like. Maybe we should hear, you know, from a, a voice of a person who embodies, you know, fatness or who, right. you know, has an- So that's just an example of what I think you're talking about. Yeah. It's like those, there was a church not that long ago that did like a women's conference, but it was all men who were speaking. <laughs> People were like, wait, hold, right. hold on a second. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. So what yeah. are some practical ways then uh, maybe that you can think of off the top of your head that uh, for me or for any other person to, who wants to be an advocate, like let's say for the black community, LGBTQ, like what are some practical things that they can do without becoming so loud that they center themselves as opposed to the, the people that they're standing up for? Yeah, I think the most important thing is being in proximity with the communities we're seeking to walk alongside. Yeah, um, and there true. may be times where it is it is so appropriate for your voice to be a shout mm. because you're in a unique position or you'll be heard in a unique way. Um, but I think, you know, as we seek to be the beloved community that Martin Luther King Jr. talks about, we won't have discernment about when Mm. to be quiet and when to speak up or what issues to focus on unless we're in proximity Mm. with the people from those communities. And so, um, you know, and I think it doesn't matter what the issue of justice is, you know, in the Middle East, being in proximity with the people of the Middle East changes the way we do our advocacy. And the same mm. thing with the Black Lives Matter movement or the LGBTQ, you know, plus community. Um, and so that would be my my primary encouragement is mm. to be with the people you know, who are most affected by the issues we're concerned by. Yeah, that's really good. And don't just go out and try to find your, you know, token person who you can get to know who's in that community, but actually get to, I think, live among those, live among the community. That's right. So one of the reasons, I don't know if you're familiar with Daniel Hill or his work out of Chicago. Um, He wrote a book called White Awake, and he has another book called White Lies. Um, And it's, he writes about racial justice and white Mm -hmm. supremacy and white privilege. He leads a multi-ethnic church community. Most of the leaders of his church are people of color. And his work and ministry is undergirded by African Americans and people of color who are lifting him up and saying, would you please be a voice to white people about this issue? Mm. You know, so he's not saying I'm a voice to white people, you know, but the, the, the people from, you know, people of color, the people in his church, the people in his community are blessing him. And he really submits to their authority. You know, he has a, a whole group of people who enter into discernment with him about, hey, should I write this book? Or, hey, should mm-hmm. I take these speaking engagements? Um, so he's not discerning that alone, but he's discerning that in the context of community. I think that's really good. I think the, that word proximity is so important because I think having proximity to different communities of people, you know, helps you, like you said, you're not just, not just standing up and talking about what you think is the right thing to talk about, but you're actually getting to hear people's 
stories. And like one of the biggest examples for me is um, when I stepped out of that evangelical world and started to really think about, rethink my thoughts on like LGBTQ inclusion. Uh, it happened yes. because I went to work for, I'm, I work for Apple. And so at Apple, we have a whole bunch of different types of people from various walks of life. And a lot of them are part of the LGBTQ community. So I went from my church bubble who knew nobody who was gay to now I have friends who are gay, lesbian, trans, all these different things. And I'm like, oh my goodness, like now I'm in a relationship with these people. I'm hearing their stories and I'm hearing the things that matter to them. So it's not like I'm just picking up a book and reading what maybe one person's idea is, but I'm actually getting to hear the real life stories of real life people. And that kind of fuels my, uh, my activism or my advocacy uh, even more. That's right. And, you know, I think it's important for all of us to understand any community, communities we're a part of or communities that are different from us. No community is a monolith. So yeah. to your point, you know, it's not that, um, you know, if I have a neighbor who's a person of color, you know, myself being white, um, you know, the black community has very divergent ideas about right. how to respond constructively to racism or how to. Yeah. And so I think that's also critically important, you know, to your point is just to acknowledge that different communities are not monolithic in sure. their perspectives. So you mentioned a little, a little earlier about, about George Floyd and a lot of things going on in the country at the moment with uh, racial reconciliation and, and all those things. I want to drill down a little bit into chapter five of your book. It's called White Supremacy and American Christianity. And uh, in this chapter, you talk about uh, racism, uh, white privilege, white fragility, white supremacy. And again, if I'm being honest, like this is all brand new territory for me, because like I said, I was raised in a very conservative, very different world. And we didn't kind of wade into these waters at all. And if anything, we kind of downplayed those terms. So I was wondering if you could maybe take us through like what these terms refer to, like what, what exactly is racism? Because we throw that word around a lot, but maybe if you could help us define it a little bit, white privilege, white supremacy, white fragility, because even I've been accused of using these terms, like my heart is in a good place, but maybe using them in the wrong, in the wrong context or the wrong way. So maybe help us define sure. these things a little bit. Um, so I don't know uh, from an academic perspective if this is, you know, considered the most up-to-date definition of racism, sure, but, sure. you know, over the past decades, the actual term racism has often been understood as the combination of prejudice and power. So, mm. you know, people will often talk about some of the Black Lives Matter movement and they'll say, you're being racist against whites. Mm -hmm. Well, the thing that's missing and the reason that it's not racism against whites is because whites in general have a consolidated power that blacks or people of color do not have. Mm -hmm. And so racism is this combination, not just of prejudice, which it certainly is, but prejudice plus power. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about systemic racism, we're talking about the fact that the very systems that our country was created upon have this inherent assumption of prejudice that white people are superior, here we're getting into white supremacy, mm -hmm. than other people, than people of color. Mm -hmm. So white supremacy is not a conscious thought that many whites, I mean, certainly some do today, but it's an it's a undergirding, um, almost, you know, the way I would describe it is like a dandelion, like the roots of the dandelion have not yet been rooted up from the ground. Mm. And so 
white supremacy is this assumption or this inherent systemic issue of white people being privileged and being viewed as better than you know people of color mm. and i i think a lot of people um, depending on their political perspective or their history, as you mentioned, where we come from or our church context, those types of ideas will be completely outside of their wheelhouse. They'll yeah. be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> right. And that's where I would say, you know, I am a historian or at least an avocational historian. You know, I have my <laughs> PhD from the University of California in history. And when we look at the history of race in our country, the vast majority of Americans have no idea, even, even how our recent history um, plays out on you know, racial aspects of the way our society engages today. So mm. you know, things like when slavery ended, um, a lot of prisons bought slave plantations and former slaves were arrested for, you know, these laws that um, were very su superfluous. Mm -hmm. And a lot of slave plantations continued as prisons. You know, one example mm -hmm. is Angola, Angola, Louisiana State Penitentiary. It's named Angola because slaves were brought from the African country of Angola to mm -hmm. that slave plantation. And so after slavery ended, um, there was a period of time where it was a private prison, and then mm. it actually became Louisiana State Penitentiary of Angola. Mm. And that was a slave breeding plantation. And when we look at that prison system today, um, it is one of the laws in Louisiana are some of the most draconian laws. You know, if you commit a crime in Louisiana, you often can have um, sentences that are uh, multiple times worse than if you, you know, commit them in Mississippi or neighboring states. Yeah. And so like in Louisiana State Penitentiary, most of the inmates are African-American and the vast majority of inmates who go there will die in that prison because of the laws, you know, of Louisiana that are still draconian. Mm -hmm. And so for us to not understand the history, that goes all the way back to more than 100 years ago, but it affects, you know, the prison system and the way the African-American community um, is affected by the prison system here in the 21st century. Yeah. A lot of times, like when we have these conversations and I, I, like a white person might get very defensive. It's like, because there's this thought that this, I guess, lack of understanding that these laws that have gone in place years and years and years ago that have yet to be reformed are still causing uh, a division. They're still causing a problem for, for people in the black community. That's right. And a lot of times um, we will have moved beyond the laws, but even just in the last five years, I sold a home. I was living in Northern California in the San Francisco Bay Area. And this was just an example of how the history stays with us. Mm. In the neighborhood that I was in, when we sold our home, it was written into the codes of the neighborhood that we could not sell the home to a black family. Oh. That's, you know, if we took it to court, it would be completely unjust according to 21st century laws. Mm -hmm. But that's an example of how the system is still in play, because unless we go to court about every single one of those neighborhood codes, mm. um, you know, that's utterly racist. Right. <laughs> you know, unless we do that, um, we have these remnants and we have this system um, that's what we talk about when we talk about, you know, systemic racism or systemic injustice mm. uh, is that the history still makes a difference. Wow. So what then is white fragility? What does that term refer to? White fragility is what you just started to talk about where the natural response for many, many, many white people is to not have tolerance 
to look mm -hmm. deeply at ourselves and how these issues have benefited our lives or privileged our lives or the ways we're complicit in mm -hmm. supporting the system. Okay. And so it's like a fragile people, emotions kind of regarding this. That's right. Mm -hmm. and, and even the tolerance to have the conversations. I mean, most uh, and forgive me for saying most, but I, I believe that to be true. White people are not out there, you know, watching movies about systemic injustice or about, um, you know, black history or even, you know, slavery or the treatment of Native Americans. And so mm. one of the great impacts of this social media movement and Black Lives Matter and then the protests and all that's been happening this year, one of the great benefits is that people and I believe white people included are actually reading books by people of color or watching movies where most of the actors are black, mm. you know, and that's something that it doesn't naturally happen because of comfortability, because of lack of familiarity. And so all of that contributes to white fragility. And then white privilege. I mean, one of the big misunderstandings that I've come across with that is like, when we, when we use the term privilege, people tend to think, well, I know I wasn't just handed the things that I have in my life. Like I had to work for all of those things, but I guess the reality of white privilege is kind of like you said that uh, the privilege that we have today has been set up generations and generations ago by laws that were set up then that benefited white people that we're still benefiting from today. Yeah, um, I, I think that's right. And, you know, um, when we talk about justice being about access to resources, you know, yeah. one example that contributes to white privilege today is even a state laws and the way that capital you know, homes, money, resources, you know, access to financial stability, the way those things have been passed down by law, let alone by practice for many, many white, you know, families and white people has been totally different than for people of color. So think about the GI Bill, you know, you had soldiers fighting in World War II, they come back, they have access to be able to take out loans to build homes. And then those homes, um, you know, most of them or many of them, you know, build up equity. And so capital grows. And then that capital is passed down through a state. You know, when that family dies, they give it their home to their son or the value of the home to their son. All of that was excluded for black soldiers. Mm. So generationally, you've had resources and capital and financial access, you know, that's been poured into the white community. And even the definition of who's in the white community is different, right? Like sure. <laughs> Irish Italians and things like that, who was right. determined to be white at various points in history has changed. Mm. Um, and so all of that contributes towards white privilege. Mm. So you have laws that were put in place generations ago that benefited white people. And therefore now generations later, the white families, the white generations that have come are still benefiting off of those, those laws, whereas black people didn't have that same opportunity. That's right. And, and that's, um, th there's some broad sweeping assumptions, you know, certainly some African American families have been able to accumulate wealth, right? Sure, so sure. So, some of this is summarizing some things, but, mm. you know, unless we think that it's only historical, we could talk about redlining where, you know, banks, Banks in the last, you know, today and in five, the last five years or 10 years or so, you know, redlining's become much, um, we're much more aware of it and there's a lot more regulations around it. Mm. But redlining was the practice where banks would give loans to people based on where they live. So mm. people that lived in, you know, communities that were impoverished or 
which might be predominantly African American or Latino or different communities of color, a bank would look at that and say it's too high of a risk to give that person a loan. And it even could be, you know, that person might have a good job or education or all of these types of things, but based on their geography of where they lived, the bank would say it was too much of a risk. And so capital wouldn't be invested or extended to that person of color. Mm. Um, you know, so redlining is a 21st, you know, 20th century phenomenon, you know, which is very different than some of these historical examples we're talking about. Sure. Now, what do you say to the person who like talks about uh, like white privilege, white supremacy, white fragility, like by slapping this word white in front of all of these words, like you're actually fueling this divide. I know you touched on it a little while ago, but maybe drill down a little bit deeper into that because one of the kind of the arguments that I get a lot is, you know, well, you're just throwing on all these terms, but you're actually fueling the problem of racism by using those terms. I think we again have to go back to myself as a white person, we as white people have, um, we are the ones who have put the emphasis on the term white. Mm -hmm. So let's look at, you know, I'm sorry, I keep going to history, but in the early 20th century, there were fittest family contests at county fairs throughout the United States where the family that was the most white would win awards. Really? Yes. Mm -hmm. And this is not like, oh, you know, this only happened in rural you know, Arkansas or something right, like that. Right. All across the country, there have been aspects of whiteness that have been, you know, esteemed, highly valued, you know, even the definition of, you know, we could talk about immigration, mm. where laws of immigration have been about allowing white people in and keeping people of color out. So we mm. could talk about the Chinese Exclusion Act, or we could talk about, um, you know, even just these Muslim bans, you know, of this current administration where, you know, the Arab, you know, keep the Arab out. Uh, <laughs> that's a way that we are yeah. putting whiteness at the center and esteeming whiteness. And so for someone who says, you know, by putting white in front of the word, I would maybe turn it around and say, well, where do you think that comes from? Mm. You know, who, who was identifying us as white? It was white people, <laughs> yeah. you know, in the, in the goal of protecting and consolidating power, right? Mm. Which is ultimately privilege and racism. So yeah. I think there's a lot that has to be deconstructed in that I type mean, of a conversation. Yeah. Now, what are some, maybe some I don't know, from tidbits of wisdom from your experience to kind of engaging in these conversations, because obviously there's a hot button topics, uh, especially like within families, sometimes families stand on very different sides of the issue. Like what are some different ways that you found helpful to engage this situation or these conversations in a way that's not going to be just like a, a spark to a stick of dynamite to make it explode? Like what are some different ways to gradually engage the conversation with people who maybe are a little bit um, on edge about this kind of stuff? That question, you hit it right on the head with the question. Um, you know, I'm living in a community right now where there are, um, just as there are around the country, a lot of divides based on politics. People mm. are very deeply entrenched either in, you know, support of the Trump administration or in, uh, you know, um, more progressive issues. Um, and I think the heart of social advocacy is standing our ground. When people say things or have very strong feelings about things, um, and forgive me for being so precise, but 
I think our demeanor makes a huge difference. If we mm. respond with energy and anger and, you know, you <laughs> talked about how do you not explode this around your dinner table? <laughs> right. um, I think it takes a very centered place in our spirit to be able to say quietly with love, I, I don't agree. Or mm. no, I don't think that's right. Um, I, I just had an issue out on a tennis court. So talk about privilege, right? I'm out <laughs> on a tennis court. I was playing with someone who as a white gentleman, probably in his 70s. And he, I, I didn't know him very well. We just met in the context of tennis in our community. And this is recreational tennis. Like this isn't at a club or anything like sure. that. And he was talking about, it was uh, shortly after George Floyd's death. And he was talking about how that was really awful that that man was killed, but that was an isolated incident, you know? And so I don't understand how... Um, you know, he was using words like these riots, you know, and kind of mm. talking about some of these protests and assuming that they were violent. Like there were so many assumptions in what he was saying. And I really thought that that was a poignant moment in my own uh, social advocacy and in my own, you know, spirit. And I didn't know this man at all. So I didn't want to say, well, I didn't know how deeply to go. Sure. And so I ended up um, just and, and many people might say, hey, this is not enough. You know, don't be so gentle or et cetera. But I said, I think there's more to it than that. Mm. And, you know, my understanding is that it wasn't just one man, that actually it's a, an issue that happens all over the place on a regular basis. Mm. And my understanding is the protests actually aren't violent. And, um, you know, the vast majority of people who are going out on the street, you know, are not vandalizing, you know, local stores. They're actually raising an issue they care deeply about. And I mean, this was all like in between serves. So it was not <laughs> just like a light day on the tennis court. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> but I think sometimes those types of conversations, yeah. you know, are the most critical to say, no, I think you're missing something, mm. you know? Um, and I think when it becomes, you know, more than just conversation, you know, I think advocacy is actually taking a much firmer stand, you know, my professional life and in the work that I do um, as an advocate, I feel like I have a much stronger obligation to go more deeply or hit a little harder on a lot of these issues. I think you bring up an interesting, just an interesting point and just in conversing with people is that almost like diffusing the conversation by saying like, it's interesting that you see it that way, because this is the way that I see it, as opposed to no, you're wrong. This is the way that it actually is. Like, I think that depending on how you respond to a person's uh, statement that might spark something inside of you can really determine how the rest of the conversation is going to go. You know, it's funny. Um, this just makes me think of in my own family, I do a lot of work in the Middle East and okay. I work with the Palestinian community, mm. Palestinian Christians, but Palestinian Muslims. Um, and I work with Israelis and the Jewish community as well. Mm. Um, but I believe, and I actually think that anyone who's studied the issue, you know, there's been a military occupation of the Palestinian people that has gone on since 1967. Um, and so my firm belief is that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not a zero-sum game, but that there are profound injustices towards the Palestinian community that are often mm. not acknowledged and not addressed, particularly in our politics. So talk about a contentious you know, issue as <laughs> sure. uh, we're sitting down to celebrate Hanukkah with my parents' best friends who are Jewish, right? <laughs> and that, I mean, this is true. Yeah. So my mother, when I started to do this type of advocacy, my um, mother 
was a Zionist, an ardent Zionist, very, very pro-Israel. And I mean, I said Palestine and she said, you know, terrorist. I mean, it, it was mm -hmm. so extreme. And I think it probably took three to five years of me bringing Palestinians, you know, home of um, her learning about the work, about her having proximity to the Palestinian community. And she is now her perspective has expanded so much. I mean, we still have mm. very close Jewish friends. We still believe in, you know, um, liberation and equality and justice, you know, for Israel. Uh, but my mother is someone who, I mean, she, I, I can't tell you the, the, the battles we had initially, <laughs> you know, around the dinner table for years. Um, and it's been really, really beautiful to see the way she's grown and to see the way her perspective has shifted. And, you know, of course, mine has as well. Hmm. It's like you you learn from each other's perspectives. That's not right. Just, it's not just While like not one compromising exactly. on issues of injustice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can you can still have the ability to learn from somebody else's perspective, even if you disagree. Yeah, I think that's right. The last question for you, uh, more of a practical one, but what can like the average uh, person do who uh, maybe they work a f you know full time job, they have family, kids, mortgage, all the things, but they feel like they want to get more involved in these issues, racial reconciliation, uh, LGBTQ advocacy, they have an abundance of passion, but they have a lack of, of time. <laughs> what are some like practical sure. ways that they can get involved in these discussions? Sure. I think my greatest encouragement is to, you know, to those individuals is to just be faithful where you are. Like what's God you what's God called you to in this you know moment in your life? And if it's you know an intense job and that's where you're focusing your energy, where at work can you have integrity and can you bring the things that God's put on your heart and these issues that you care deeply about? How can those be present in the context mm -hmm. of your work? Yeah. Um, if it's raising your kids, you know, if if you're a white person buy some books that are written by people of color that are talking about what life is like for, you know, black kids. Mm. Um, you know, one of the things my mother did in like, it tells you how old I am, like back in the seventies, when I was a little girl, I had a black cabbage patch doll, which mm. I think was pretty revolutionary in 19, <laughs> you know, I won't tell you which year, but <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> you know, and so, if, if your primary role is at a, as a caregiver with children, you know, I think that's, we can't underestimate the power of raising children, um, you know, to be exposed to um, people outside of their own community. And then my last encouragement is just about proximity. I think, mm -hmm. you know, for moms that have playgroups or stay-at-home dads, you know, are there people of color in your community? Are there other groups where you can do the things that are your primary responsibility but do them in a way where you're in proximity to other people who, you know, might naturally not be, you know, uh, in your community. Yeah. So I think that being attentive to proximity about who our neighbors are um, is a really great place to start. Yeah. I think that's a, a really good point is to, to do what you can where you are. You know, I know for myself, like I, I, I tend to be like super hard on myself. I'm like, oh, I got to be doing more. I got to go do something. And, and some, I had a friend say to me, well, why don't you use your podcast to begin to even invite people on to have these kinds of conversations? Like you're one of the first people I've invited on to have this kind of a conversation. So it's relatively new for me, but I feel like this could be a springboard, could be a platform to have more conversations, bigger conversations, and just to keep bringing people on to create more awareness.
that's wonderful. Yeah. I, and I'm, I'm really grateful, Glenn. And if you want me to introduce you, you know, to people who are a part of the broader activist community, I'd be happy to send them your way. I would love that. Maybe after we, uh, after I end the recording, we can talk a little bit more about that. That would be great. <laughs> sure, sure. Awesome. Well, we're just about out of time. Um, I do have to clock back in for lunch in a few minutes, but uh, thank you so much for your time and taking the time to come on here and talk to me. Thanks. I appreciate it. And where can people go real quick to find you online and engage with you a little bit? Oh, sure. So I'd love for them to listen. I have a podcast um, uh, that focused on, it's called Hashtag Activism. So that can be found online or they can find it on my website, www.maycannon, M-A-E, cannon.com. Awesome. Well, I'll put the links to that in the show notes and we'll do this again sometime soon. Awesome. Thanks, Glenn. Thank you. We let go.